Let's just pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we bow before you and we thank you that Jesus, your son, has paid it all. That there on the cross he paid for our sins and dealt with our sin once and for all. Thank you that we can worship you this morning and give thanks for your son. We praise you now. Pray that you speak to us and meet with us in your word. Help us to humble ourselves underneath the sound of your word, we pray this morning, and to receive from you and from your spirit through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Between the ages of about 14 and 15, I began to sense that God was calling me to serve him in a local church capacity as a a leader and a Bible teacher. And I had no idea at that age how that would work out, what that would look like, if that was even possible. I was only 14, 15. I had no idea if that was even possible, how it would look like, what it would work out, or how I would do that. And over the next 10 years, I wrestled with this sense of calling upon my life that I believe God had given to me. And I shared that with one or two mature Christians over the years and sought their counsel and they generally said, well, just keep on doing what you're doing, keep going to church, being involved in church life and sharing the the, uh, gospel with with people at at work and so on and just keep studying your Bible. Sometimes I prayed about it, sometimes I completely forgot about it and it was kind of drifted off and it was out of my mind. Other times it was really burning within me and it's a real kind of a journey for me over a period of about 10 years. And then after leaving school and working for about nine years and then having got married to Claire, one night in this very room, as we were sat here listening to a sermon that was preached by a guy called Ray Oliver, uh, God very clearly said to both of us that night, get up and go. Get up and go. And so Claire, of us, uh, Claire and I, as we drove home that night, back to Wall's End, back to our flat, we both looked at each other and said, yeah, uh, God's spoken, hasn't he? And, and it's time to get up time to go, it's time to leave our jobs and do that. And to cut a long story short, after, uh, after we did that, we spoke to the elders here, we went to Bible College up in uh, Motherwell, Tilsey College, and after a year there we went down to Hereford, and we worked with a new church that had just been planted about two years before that in, in Hereford in the south of the city. And we were commended by the church here to the grace of God, it's an expression we'll come back to in today's Bible passage. We were commended to the grace of God. In other words, we lived by faith. We didn't have a salary. We looked to God to support us, to provide for our needs. And God always did that, partly through this church giving and forwarding funds to us. We were there for eight years, and then we came back here in 2007 to work for the church here at Regent. And I reflected on our journey this week as a couple, Claire and I, and as a family this week, as I studied today's passage in order to preach this morning. Because in today's passage, we see a similar kind of thing happening. We see God speaking to people, and then over a number of years later, God calling them and calling them to step out and serve God in a particular way. Giving people, uh, early on in their Christian life, a a calling to serve Him in a particular way. And then in this instance, in our instance, 10, 12, 13 years later, seeing that come to fruition. Now please don't think I'm comparing Claire and I to Paul and Barnabas. Please don't think I'm saying anything of the sort. And our story is not exactly the same either as Paul and Barnabas's. But as I read and as I studied this passage this week, it reminded me that God speaks to people and God puts a calling on people's lives to serve him. We're all called to serve him. Keith made reference to that. But we've, uh, we've acknowledged, haven't we, people this morning, Brian and Mary, who in a particular way have served God following a calling that God has put on their lives. And we're all called to serve, but some people God will call to step out and do things that perhaps are, are out of the ordinary or to serve him in a particular way, perhaps sometimes to leave our jobs and so on. 
and we see how from a small seed that's sowed into someone's life, perhaps a verse that's shared, a prophecy given to somebody uh, during a sermon, uh, God speaking directly to somebody, however it might be, sometimes then many years down the road, God fulfills that and calls that person or those people out into his service. Now we're continuing in our series uh, looking at and studying the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostles were the early leaders of the church, the 12 apostles appointed by Jesus, plus a few more um, over the initial years of the church. And the Acts of the Apostles is the record of their acts, the things that they did, and how the good news about Jesus spread right across the Roman Empire, and how churches were planted, and how the church grew under their leadership. And today we're going to read from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. But we're going to start at the very last verse of the previous chapter, which Rob was dealing with us uh, last week for. And we're just going to read verse 25 of Acts 12, because that then links us in to what happens in our study today. So Acts chapter 12, if you've got a Bible and you want to follow, please do. If not, you can just listen as I read it to you. So Acts chapter 12 and verse 25, right at the end of the chapter. When Barnabas and Saul, Saul is also called Paul, and, and it's in chapter 13 that Luke switches and no longer calls him Saul, but begins to call him Paul. So Saul, Paul, same man, okay? When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John, that's John Mark, was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Polus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Great passage, great uh, event as the church begins to spread and keeps on spreading. Now, if you are here a few weeks ago, you'll remember how Saul, who over time began to be known as Paul, which we see for the first time in, in today's passage, how Saul and Barnabas spent a whole year teaching the Christians in Antioch. The Bible tells us that, that followers of Jesus were first called Christians at Antioch. And they began to uh, they spent a whole year there. Then they went to help the church in Jerusalem with some financial help. And verse 25 of chapter 12 says this, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. John Mark, as he's sometimes known, is the man who wrote the second of the four Gospels, Mark's Gospel. And it was his mother that Peter uh, ran to when he escaped from prison. We looked at two weeks ago as Peter escaped from prison and he went to to, uh, John Mark's mother's house and that's where he, he went. And this is the man we're looking at, John Mark. And when Paul and Barnabas and John Mark returned to Antioch, something significant happened in the church there at Antioch. 
and in the history of the church and in Paul and Barnabas' life. Verse 1 says this, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul or Paul. Paul and Barnabas, having returned from Jerusalem, along with some of the other key leaders of the church in Antioch, gathered together to worship the Lord and to fast. It was a prayer meeting, a kind of worship prayer meeting of the leaders and some of the other key people in the church. Some of them were prophets, Luke tells us. He starts off by saying they were prophets. In other words, they were people that God had given the spiritual gift of prophecy to through whom the Holy Spirit would speak to the people, to the church. Sometimes a message of encouragement, sometimes a message of direction, sometimes challenge and rebuke. And verse 2 says, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. As they held this prayer meeting, which is effectively what it was, the Holy Spirit spoke through one of the prophets, we don't know who it was, but he spoke through one of these prophets and told the church that was gathered, the leaders of his church, to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that he had given them to do, that he had called them to do. But what was this work that God had called them, appointed them to do? Well, we need to go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 15, to find the answer to that. And it's just after Paul had become a Christian. At this time, he's called Saul. He's out there. He's a hater of the Christians. He's on his way to Damascus and Syria to round up the Christians there, to put them in prison and probably to put them to death. And as he's on his way to Damascus, he sees a vision of Jesus. And Jesus confronts him. And he goes blind as he sees this great vision of God, this great vision of Jesus. And as a result of that, to cut a long story short, Saul, who becomes Paul, becomes a Christian and gives his life to Jesus and spends the rest of his life serving Jesus and spreading the good news all over Europe. And in Acts 9.15, just after Paul had trusted in Jesus, God spoke to a man called Ananias and told him to go and to help Paul. Look at what it says. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. So God had appointed Paul to be the key person through whom he would take the the good news about Jesus to to Gentiles, to people who were non-Jews, but also to the Jews. He was to be the person to carry the name of, of Jesus before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Paul had been given this specific commissioning by God. But that was at least 11, possibly 12 or 13 years before the, the events we've read about today in Acts 13. So there's a period of, in just a few chapters, 12, maybe 11, 10, 11, 12, 13 years have elapsed between Paul becoming a Christian on the road to Damascus and Paul now being at Antioch and being sent off by the church there. Paul had to wait well over 10 years before God finally made it possible for him to do the very thing that he had put in his heart to do, that he'd commanded him to do, that he'd appointed him to do many years earlier. And in the meantime, Paul got busy. He didn't just sit around and wait. He didn't spring off too early. He did what God called him to do. He got busy serving God. He spent three years whilst he was in Damascus, going into Arabia, studying the Bible, hearing directly from God, receiving much of the New Testament. He went up to Jerusalem. Then he went to Tarsus, his hometown, which is in modern-day Turkey. And then he spent the year in Antioch. So many years have passed, 10, 12, 13 years perhaps, until in God's plan, it was time for Paul to become the leader of a great missionary and church planting effort. And Paul would go on to do three great missionary journeys and then a final journey, a fourth journey, where he'd go all the way to Rome and he would end his days in Rome and finally be executed by Nero, by, the, by Caesar Nero. It's probably true that none of us today will ever achieve for God what Paul did. But it may well be that nonetheless, God 
has called people or is calling people here today to serve him in some specific way. Maybe God has already spoken to you in your past. Maybe he's going to speak to you this morning. Maybe that is to to actually not just do what you're doing in church already, which is fantastic and we all can serve and that's fantastic, but maybe to take that extra step and to leave your job and to possibly go and plant a church somewhere else. Or maybe to go abroad and to serve God by taking the good news about Jesus to people in other countries who, who don't know about Jesus. You might think, you know, well, isn't the world reached with the gospel? No, it's not. Far from it. If you go to Europe, right on our doorstep, countries right on our doorstep, Belgium, under lockdown. Uh, I noticed on my phone before I started the service, before we started the service this morning, under terrorist lockdown, Belgium has less than about 0.5% Christians in Belgium. Tiny, tiny number of Christians. There are more uh, mediums and spiritists and people involved in the occult than there are Christian leaders in Belgium. And that's just across the board, just across the water from us. So we've got a whole continent on our doorstep that desperately needs the gospel. Greece, almost completely untouched by the gospel. Whole areas of Europe, where barely the gospel has, has, has touched for 2,000 years. So there is a massive need. That's to say nothing of the world beyond Europe. And even right on our doorstep, there are whole areas of Tyneside where there is no credible evangelical witness preaching the gospel week after week. Whole housing estates unreached by the gospel. No local church functioning as, a, as the Bible would teach us. So maybe it's true, or maybe it's the case this morning, that God is calling you to maybe leave your job, to, to lead a church, to plant a church, to go and maybe go abroad even as a missionary. So a key question I want us to, just to stop and think about for a moment this morning is this. Is God calling me, is God calling you to do a specific work for him in this country or abroad? God calls all of us. We're all, we're all called. We're all appointed to serve him. But is God calling you to step out to something unique, to something specific, to serve him in a full-time capacity in this country or abroad? It may be that God has already spoken to you. It may be that you're sensing that God has been stirring you up or preparing you for something. For me, it was as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, beginning to sense that God was speaking to me. It may be that God is speaking to you right now this morning for the very first time. So I want us all just to take a moment and just bow our heads and close our eyes and in the silence just to ask God to speak to us. Maybe that that isn't what God has for you. But it may be that God has something to say to you right now, perhaps to call you to a specific work for him, regardless of what age you are or what your circumstances are, your education, your job, your background, all irrelevant. God may be speaking to you this morning. So let's just pause and, and listen to God. If you sense that God has been speaking to you or if you've heard, or if you heard from God or are hearing from God this morning as we uh, go through this service, then please come and share that with, uh, with Keith or with Paul or myself after the service or during this week. And don't think that your education prevents you. I left school with six GCSEs. I don't have a great lot of qualifications to my name. Maybe you think, yeah, and it shows. Maybe that's true, I don't know. But, you know, we don't have to be great clever people or, or, or young or old. It doesn't matter what we are, where we're from, what our background is. We just need to have a heart to serve God and God will call the most unlikely of people at times. Now, having received this prophecy and command from God, we read these words. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. 
It probably also communicated what God had said to the wider church. So the whole church was involved in this. And then they got them together and formally commissioned them and laid hands on them and prayed for them and, and, and commissioned and commended them to go and to serve God in this specific way. And about a year later, this is how long this missionary journey takes, about a year later, when they returned from this missionary journey, which was to be the first of three, with a, then with a fourth for Paul who ends up uh, uh, in prison in Rome eventually, as we come to the end of this first missionary journey, uh, flipping on into Acts 14, we read these words from Italia. They sailed back to Antioch, where they had been uh, committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. And you can see on the map, that's Paul's, uh, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, first to Cyprus, then up into what is now Turkey, traveling around modern-day Turkey, and then back from Italia, uh, the seaport, and then sailing back to Cilicia, and then back to Antioch. This is their first missionary journey. The church in Antioch had commended them to the grace of God. In other words, they'd sent them off, committing them to God's care and provision, trusting that God would look after them and supply their needs. They didn't have a salary. They didn't have any great missionary organizations or societies that were going to pledge to support them by so much money. This was sending them off to the grace of God, that they would look to God in faith. But it wasn't just that. The church in Antioch was going to go on this great missionary journey through and in the lives of Paul and Barnabas. This wasn't just kind of waving them off and forgetting about them and saying, you know, send us a postcard when you get there. This was a partnership through which the church in Antioch were going to go with them on mission. The church would stay in Antioch, but these men expressing the church in Antioch would go out and would spread the gospel through Cyprus and through into Turkey. They weren't just sending them off and forgetting about them. This was a, a partnership. And it sets a great precedence and pattern for what full-time Christian service should look like in the New Testament and in New Testament churches like ours. An individual couple may go, but they go with the support and the commendation of their local church. And what that means that is that the church prays for them and the church financially supports them and sees their work wherever it may be, whether it's down the road, whether it's in another country, wherever that might be, as an extension of the work of their church. So if it's, if it's this church here and we're sending a person or, an, or a couple out, then what they do is an extension of this church. It's not just them, wave goodbye and we'll see you in a five years or whenever. It's a partnership through which we are working through them at a distance. So as and when we send people, and let's pray that people will be raised up to go, as we send people from this church, whether to plant a new church somewhere locally or to go somewhere else in the UK or to go abroad to spread the gospel, then as a church we need to back and support with prayer and finance those who God calls to serve him. We need to back and support with prayer and finance. Write that on your outline. There should be an outline on your chair. As a church, as people go from here, if and when that happens, not if, but when that happens in the future, God willing, then as they go, they are going with our backing, they're going with our commending, as we lay hands on them, as we send them with our blessing, as they're commended to the grace of God, then we need to back and support them with prayer and with finance, those who God has called to serve him. And you know, sometimes sending money, sending a check can be the easy thing. The far harder thing is to stay involved in the people's lives and stay in contact with them, to, to write, to phone, to email, and maybe even to visit if possible. That's what really makes the difference. There's some of us here who've been away in other parts of the world, other, parts, other countries or parts of the country, and, and, and the financial support is, is massive. It's hugely important. But the thing that really makes a difference is that email, that phone call to know that you're not forgotten, that you're still being prayed for. And it was great when we were in Hereford, not only to have the financial support, which was significant and considerable, 
but to get a phone call from people saying, there's a prayer meeting on Tuesday. Are there some things that we could pray for as a church? And that kind of uh, involvement is so key as we uh, send people out to the grace of God. And when in the future people go from here to serve God, they go as representatives of this church. They're an extension of us. And they need to be supported with prayer and with pastoral care and with financial help. You know, the other thing that really stands out for me as I study this passage is this, that church planting, write this down, church planting should be a normal pattern and activity. Ryan, can you just sort the PC out, please? Thank you. Church planting should be a normal pattern and activity for all churches. Every church comes into existence through another church sending or releasing a group of Christians to go and to start that church. This church began in that way. This church hasn't existed just since kind of forever. It began because a group of Christians left the church in the centre of Newcastle and were sent and came here and began a church, not in this actual building, but in Gosford. Many years ago, every church starts as a plant at some time in their history. And churches are not meant to then just stay as plants. Churches that are planted are then meant to plant more churches. And churches that are not planting churches are not being biblical. The biblical model is that as churches are planted, those plants go on to plant other churches. That is the New Testament pattern. It's how every church comes into existence. And churches that ignore that biblical example of spreading the gospel and planting new churches are not biblical churches. You know, so often church planting is seen as some kind of niche thing that only some or certain churches do. And, and that's not the intention of the New Testament. Some of you will know about Christ Church in Heaton. Uh, a great church, they've planted a church in, in, in Heaton, but then within a few years planted a, a congregation in Fenham, and they've just launched, and it was great, Ryan was able to go and be part of that launch ceremony, a church in Gosforth, which is great, and we're working in partnership with them, and uh, some of their leaders are coming to our house for dinner on Friday, so we, we, we have a great relationship with them, and we really want to bless them in what they're doing. It's fantastic, because in a very short space of time, some 10, 12 years, they've planted three congregations, and that's what missional communities, that's what the, the church should look like. Churches planting churches planting churches. That's how it was in the New Testament, and that's how it should be in every church. The church in Hereford that God called Claire and I to work with uh, began in 1996 with just six adults. Six adults who left, who were sent, were commended by their parent church in the city centre in Hereford. They crossed the river, went into work in some uh, four council estates that were in, in the south of the city, and they met in a community centre with a big pole in the middle. You had to sort of sit the right side of it, otherwise you couldn't see the speaker. And there were just six adults with some kids. And that was church in a community centre. It didn't have all the luxury of all the stuff that we have in, on a Sunday, just six adults. When we were there, it was about 16 adults. And when I get up to preach, half the church would leave. Well, that happens normally anyway to me. But some of them would get up and go and do Sunday school and crash. And there might only be sort of six or seven adults left. And, and that was church as we started it. But now that church many years later, is about the same size as this church. And there have been ups and downs and hard times and good times as, the, as folks have been saved and the church has grown. That is church planting. And that's normal. That is a normal New Testament model. So as a church, we should be thinking about church planting. We might not be able to do it this week or this month or this year or maybe not even this decade before you panic and, and worry that you know, half the church is going to disappear. We might not even be able to do it this decade. But we should be thinking about it at the very least and we should be praying for God to release people into that role because that is biblical. Because biblical churches plant other churches. And Paul received his call to serve God in missionary work and church planting when he was first saved, but it was 10, 12, 13 years later before God finally opened up the way for that to happen. And it may be 12 years before we get to plant a church from here. 
But we should be thinking about it. It should be on our agendas. We should be praying for it in the prayer meetings. We should be looking for that to happen. And that'll be uncomfortable because it means perhaps a group of friends in this church will leave and will go somewhere else. And we won't see them every week anymore because they'll be somewhere else. And, and that's the nature of the gospel. The gospel requires sacrifice. We're not meant to be a nice cosy club where we all stay together and just have fun every week. We're meant to be going out and taking the gospel. And that will be uncomfortable. That will require sacrifice. It means people will, won't always be here. They'll be somewhere else. But it's worth it because Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. And so that means that we have to sacrifice so that lost people get the same benefit that we get in sitting here this morning and being blessed by the gospel. Love demands it, that we go. Keith Green said, Jesus commands us to go. It should be the exception if we stay. So here's a question for you this morning. Is God calling you to be involved in going out to plant a new church? It's not for everybody. God isn't going to call everybody to do this. Church planting is hard, hard work. But it's so good and it's so rewarding. It might be 12 years before it happens to you. For me, it was 10 years before God released me into Christian service. It may be that God wants you to be involved in helping plant a church, but not to lead it, but to be part of a team. It may be that God wants you to stay in your job and to do this in your spare time, or perhaps in a bivocational kind of sense. But if God is calling you to be involved in church planting, then you need to respond to that call upon your life. It may well be a long way down the road. Who knows? God knows. But to do that, if God is calling you. So let's just once again bow our heads and once more close our eyes and ask God to speak to us this morning. And maybe God is speaking to you specifically about church planting. That might be in this region, in this locality, or abroad or somewhere else. Just listen and and be open to God's Spirit this morning. Maybe that as you've sat here this morning and opened yourself up to the voice of the Holy Spirit, that he's spoken to you, perhaps through an audible voice, God does that, perhaps through the verses we've read, does that, maybe God has used something that I've said, God speaks in different ways to us, doesn't he? Verse 2 says this, whilst they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And the Holy Spirit had given this prophecy through one of the prophets in the church at Antioch. And God still speaks in this way today through people who have the gift of prophecy. This didn't finish uh, 2,000 years ago or anything like that. This is a gift which God gives through the Spirit. And God is still speaking through the gift of prophecy to people today. There are guidelines for the use of this gift. The Bible says this in, in 2 Thessalonians 5. It's in 1 Thessalonians 5. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. We need to give space and room for the Holy Spirit to speak to us as a church and as individuals, whether through prophecies or in other ways. The Bible has a lot to say about testing prophecies, making sure they are in line with the Word of God, that they are really from God, and we need to do that. But we do need to be open to God speaking to us. So write that down. I need to be open to the voice of the Holy Spirit, directly and through prophecies. It may be that God will speak directly to you in your own quiet time, through reading scripture, or it might be through a prophet in a church environment where someone comes and brings something from God to you directly. We need to submit to the authority of the Bible. We need to test prophecies. We need to seek the advice of godly, more mature Christians. But we do need to be seeking to hear the Spirit and to be open to His voice. Verse 13 says, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. 
John was with them as their helper. This is John Mark. And the three of them travelled across Cyprus, preaching the good news about Jesus, until something really significant happened. Verse 6 says this, They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Polus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. They met two men, one called Sergius Polus and one called Bar-Jesus. Now, Jesus, uh, Bar-Jesus just means son of Jesus. Jesus was a common name uh, at that time in the Roman Empire, particularly amongst, obviously amongst the Jews. Not to be confused with the Lord Jesus Christ, completely separate person, okay? And Luke then gives him this name, Elimus. Sergius Paulus wanted to hear the word of God. He was a pagan, he was a man who worshipped idols, he was a Roman, but he was being drawn by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was creating in him a desire and a hunger to hear the truth and to engage with the truth as it was preached, as the word of God was preached by Paul and Barnabas. His attendant, on the other hand, Elimus, was a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet. It's a man who steeped in the demonic, steeped in the occult, and in every kind of occult activity. And because of this, he hated Jesus, and he didn't want his boss to give his life to Jesus. Verse 8 says this, But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Even as Paul and Barnabas helped by John Mark, are, are telling people about Jesus. And as Sergius Paulus is wanting to know the truth, his own staff member, inspired by Satan, was doing his best to turn him away from the truth. We don't know what that looked like, whether he was in, you know, employing demonic activity or just kind of distracting him. We don't know what happens. But what we know for sure is that this man didn't want his boss to know about Jesus. And this is what happens when we spread the good news. When we spread the truth of the Bible and we tell people about Jesus, some people will want to hear more some people will want to know more about Jesus. And some of them will open their hearts to Jesus and some of them will trust him. And that's fantastic. Next Sunday we've got four people getting baptised. That's amazing. That's fantastic. And we celebrate that and we rejoice in that. But wherever there are people who are trusting in Jesus, there will also be people who reject Jesus and oppose us and oppose the message that we bring about Jesus. And we really need to understand this. We need to be prepared for opposition. Write that down. We need to be prepared for opposition because opposition will come. Not everybody will want to hear what we have to say. Not everybody will want to receive the, the word of God as we share it with them. Some people will embrace the good news as we share it and others will reject the good news and they'll reject us. And that may mean sometimes unpleasantness and difficulties in our family or in our workplace when one person just does not want to know about Jesus and consequently does not want to know us because they see the two things being together. Maybe one of our neighbours who just will refuse to talk to us, or a family member or a work colleague. Some will accept and some will reject, and we need to be prepared for that. And we need to be ready to embrace that opposition. Now, Paul wasn't going to tolerate Elimus' attempts to draw Sergius Paulus away. Look at verse 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Paul, never one for holding back, named Elimus for what he was and called down judgment on him and caused him to become temporarily blind with the aim of bringing him to repentance, I believe. Luke doesn't tell us what happened to Elimus after that. We don't know whether he repented and turned away from his sin and trusted in Jesus. I suspect he didn't, given that Luke doesn't tell us anything more about him. And I think Luke's literary device here is kind of a compare and contrast between a man, a pagan man who embraces the gospel and a man who was actually from a Jewish background but had, in, had steeped himself in the occult and the demonic 
who chooses not to. And even though he has God's judgment on upon him, all the way to death, still says, I refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. We have this contrast here. But Sergius Polus does. Look at verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He trusted in Jesus when he saw what happened to Elimus. That was the moment that clinched it for him. But it wasn't what he saw that caused him to believe. It was because he was amazed, says Luke, at the teaching about the Lord. As Paul and Barnabas taught, taught him from the Bible and taught about God and the Lord Jesus and the gospel, he was amazed and so he humbled himself before God. He repented of his sin. He trusted in Jesus to save him and to forgive him and to give him eternal life. He, was, he believed, says Luke. It was the preaching of the word. It was the preaching of the good news about Jesus from the Bible, the preaching about repentance from sins and faith in Jesus that Sergius Paulus responded to. And that's what Paul and Barnabas continued to do as they went up into Turkey, into what was Asia Minor or or now modern-day Turkey, and then on successive missionary journeys. They put the gospel, the good news about Jesus, contained in the Bible right at the centre of all their efforts. And that's exactly what we need to do. We need to keep the gospel at the centre of all our activities. Write that down. We need to keep the gospel at the centre. It is so easy and so often churches drift and it becomes about social action or it becomes about all about just Bible teaching or whatever it might be. Different things that without often realising it we can begin to drift away from keeping the gospel at the centre of church life and keeping the gospel at the centre of what we do and of our activities and our actions. It's what we need to do personally and it's what we need to do as a church. You know, it's great to have and build friendships with non-Christians, but we need to get round to sharing the gospel with them. It's great to fill this hall full of non-Christians through some of the activities and events that we have, but we need to ensure that they hear the gospel when they're here, and that they have opportunities to encounter the gospel, that we're not just putting on social events for the sake of it. We want people to, as they come to, uh, in contact with us as individuals and as a church, encounter the gospel doesn't mean that we kind of rush in perhaps the first time we meet somebody and, and buttonhole them and kind of slam the gospel at them but we want them don't we if people are in contact with us and with our church when they leave to know the gospel the gospel needs to be at the center of all that we do and we need to make sure that we're preaching the true gospel of the bible preaching repentance from sin and faith in jesus but we need to understand that just as paul and barnabas had opposition from elimus so we sometimes too will face opposition and rejection, not everybody will want to hear or accept the good news that we bring. The Bible says that the gospel is offensive to people. It causes people to stumble. We mustn't apologise for the gospel. We mustn't water it down because Paul says it's the power of God that saves people forever. Maybe this morning you're like Sergius Polis. You want to hear the word of God. You're not yet a Christian, but you would like to know more about Jesus. Can I challenge you and encourage you to do that? to find out what the Bible really says about Jesus, not perhaps what you've heard in the past or what you think it might say, but to really get to grips with what the Bible says about Jesus and what he wants you to do in response to who he is. If you'd like to do that, can I encourage you? There's a a great course we run in this church, Christianity Explored, up there on the screen and the banner over there. One life, what's it all about? Who is Jesus? Why did he come? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What happens when I die? And this course, using the Gospel of Mark, written by John Mark in this very passage that we've talked about, This whole course explores Mark's gospel and explores who Jesus is and the demands that Jesus places on our lives. And if you want to do that, if you're interested in doing that, come and chat with me afterwards. I'd be delighted to do that with you. So this morning, is God speaking to you? Is God 
calling you to step out and serve him in some specific way? Is God speaking to you about church planting? Maybe God is calling you to be a Paul, to take that leading role and to go out and lead a new church and plant a new church. Maybe he's calling you to be a John Mark, someone who, who's just a helper, and not just, but is a, is a key significant helper in that team. Someone who carries on with their daytime job, but is a helper and is part of that team. And whether we're involved in church planting or not, the call of God on all of our lives is to keep sharing the gospel, to keep preaching repentance from sin and faith in Jesus to those around us. Whether they're our friends or children, young people and adults that are connected through the various activities that we put on. Let's stay gospel focused with the gospel right at the heart of all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we bow down before you. We humble ourselves before you. We give you thanks for this great passage, great example of you speaking into people's lives, calling them to serve you, seeing people being willing to fulfill that calling. In Paul's case, with the ultimate price of losing his own life so that the gospel could be spread. We think of Paul's own words that he could say, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I am compelled to preach the gospel. Help us to have a similar attitude in our lives, we pray. Father, I pray this morning that if you're speaking into individual lives, calling people to a a specific work of service for you, may they hear your voice, may they recognize your voice, may they be obedient to you. And for all of us, Father, help us to take those opportunities to share the gospel, to tell others about you. Help us to be a gospel-centered church and gospel people, people who are full of the good news of Jesus. Bless us now, we pray. Go with us. Help us throughout this week to live for you and to honor you and to serve you, whether that's here or another country, wherever we might be. Be with us, we pray. We pray for those that we're connected to in missionary work, Andy and Sarah Stewart in Barcelona. Pray for them this morning. Bless their work for you. For the various different organizations, Glow and Echoes, Medical Missionary News, Barnabas Fund, all sorts of different agencies that we're involved with. May the workers connected with those operations, may they be given your blessing and your strength and your help. And may many come to know you through their work, we pray. So we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.